welcome back. I am Jake, and I am still here with Trip. Mm. We're in our final episode, if you can believe that. <laughs> we're in our final episode of uh, What is Anglicanism? Today we're going to handle our last object lesson, which is the frame, uh -huh. um, which has uh, a lot more vocab to it, just like all the other things. So I'm excited to learn. I'm excited to learn about how we are a liturgical and missional church, and I'm also excited to hear uh, definitions of what those things mean. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This has been a lot, uh, but I hope it's been helpful for people. Yeah, looking back over everything we've discussed, it's like, how do I pack all this into like one or two trainings? I'm not <laughs> sure how I do it, but. We don't have this much discussion in those things. That's so, true. Yes, uh, we have we have the luxury of lots of time, and I, and I can say from the from the perspective of somebody who came in knowing very little, I've learned a ton. I think your explanations have been very clear, and I feel like I've got a greater sense of what the Anglican Church does generally and what Holy Trinity does specifically. So yeah, and it's just been a great time chatting with you. So I've had a great time. <laughs> cool, me too, man. Well, Jake, you've always had a question for me to for the folks to get to know us a little bit more. Maybe oh, just a quick question today. We won't talk too long, but we're talking about worship today. Mm. And, you know, when people think about worship, they think about music. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious. You know, who who shows up on your Spotify? You know, top top five musicians listened to, or who's who's some of the people. Uh, the folks might be interested to know Jake Frisky. If you get to know him, he he likes this or that artist out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is always a very um, a very strange question for me because I don't really listen to music. <laughs> um, so that's not to say like I don't know music. I do exist in the world. I don't live in a cave. So like I hear music in the world around me. My wife listens to music, but like I don't in my leisure time listen to music. I don't listen mm -hmm. to music in my car. Mm -hmm. um, I turned the radio off in my car a long, long time ago and started listening to audiobooks because I just couldn't stand it. So I really don't, like, I, I honestly, I've never purchased an album. Uh -huh. I've never, I've never, I've only been to one, uh, mm -hmm. I've only been to one concert. And that Who was, was that? that was the Jonas Brothers Good. with my wife who right. loves your, the Jonas Brothers. Your answer Brothers. is Jonas Brothers. Um, I take so, it. <laughs> so all that to say, uh, I do, I like music, but it is not something that I seek out. So I don't even have Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, gotcha. If you want to know what I'm listening to, uh, I'm currently listening to Helmet for My Pillow. Uh -huh. Which is good. It's about World War II in the Pacific, <laughs> but it's not music. I'm sorry. What are you listening to? Good deal. Tell me about your listening habits, Mr. Gordon. What's in your Spotify top ten? I have a pretty eclectic music taste. Hmm. I listen to a lot of different things. I get that a lot from my dad. He's a big music fanatic, record collector, and but I uh, I've really been into this guy this past year. His name's Billy Strings. Hmm. Uh, he's a, a bluegrass <laughs> artist. I'm not like a bluegrass guy, but mm -hmm. uh, somebody you know, let me know about him, and I, I really have enjoyed him. He's got some uh, depth to his music. I think it's pretty cool, and it's just like an enjoyable listen. There's my plug for Billy Strings out there. If you're listening, Billy, you do some great music. Um, <laughs> but some songs, Away from the Mire, Watch It Fall. Those are some two good songs to listen to. But, um, mm. no, nah, man, I, I like a lot. I listen to a lot of different stuff, um, R&B, hip-hop, country every now and then, and then, some kind of like what would you call it like a soft rock like acoustic stuff mm -hmm. um so yeah nice. that's that's my music taste <laughs> so uh if people want to know i if i was leading the church it would be bluegrass <laughs> <laughs> and billy strings would be the guy no <laughs> definitely not Billy strings is such a good musician name especially for bluegrass like yeah. I, I hope that's his real name and not a pseudonym because that would so. be awesome he's from like michigan so hmm, yeah interesting. <laughs> Cool. Anyways. Cool, cool, cool. Well, then let's just jump in. 
we're talking today about the frame, mm -hmm. which is our, our last object lesson. Um, so do you want to give us a quick rundown of what we've done to get here? I know we've talked about telescopes and roots and, and bullseyes. Do you want to just kind of give us a quick rundown of how we got here and where we're going? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's perhaps people out there that are listening to this straight through, so <laughs> they can just fast forward 30, 45 seconds or so. <laughs> but just as a reminder, you know, the denomination that we're talking about, the question that's guiding us, what is Anglicanism? Anglicanism serves as that telescope. It's a tool that helps make a beautiful object that much more clear. And um, we use some of the resources, the history, the, the, the scriptural focus, the sacramental focus to get us more of the gospel. So those are things we've talked about. We talked about we're a word-based church. We're a sacramental church. We are an Episcopal church in our church government and polity. We are a creedal church in our historic affirmations of the faith communicating what we believe and we are a catholic church in unity both with the church historic and the church global so um in a sense we've we've started building a house and that's where this last analogy comes into play where we've laid a foundation we've we've made sure that foundation is on the rock of worship of the triune god we've made sure we've put in the rebar we've like established some infrastructure to make sure that this house will stand those are the roots, you know? And then now we're talking about, okay, now the house is really being built up. Now we're starting to see what this house is going to look like when we actually start to live in it, you know? Mm. So um, I think what we're asking when we talk about the frame, specifically its liturgy and its missional focus is how can we ensure that once we're in this house, life can be sustained within its walls? Mm. As with anyone buying a house, you're asking yourself those questions. Like, how can I trust? Okay, like we've got enough space for a family of six to live in this house. If it's a one-bedroom house, then probably can't live there. <laughs> um, so that's kind of what we're talking about today with when we think about the shape of the church. Great. I, I'd love for you to just jump right into liturgy then, but in addition to telling us about the liturgy, I'd love you to define the word liturgy because mm -hmm. um, that is a new vocab word for me today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, so in this sixth point, we're saying we are a liturgical church. And I just want to communicate real quickly here, kind of reminding ourselves a few episodes back. I think a lot of times when people think about Anglicanism, they say on bullet point one or two, they include the liturgy. Mm. And I appreciate that at least the declarations of the province, or at least how I've tried to order this, is to communicate we are a liturgical church in light of these preceding factors, yeah. that we are a gospel-centered church, we're word-based, we're sacramental, et cetera, et cetera. That shapes our liturgy. We are not a liturgical church for the sake of it being liturgical. Uh, we are a liturgical church in its attempt to get us more clear picture of the gospel. Mm -hmm. I think <laughs> I've heard John say before, like, uh, so so blame him, not me. <laughs> but there's a uh, <laughs> there's a trend out there a little bit in the world that's uh, he has titled and I've heard elsewhere called uh, sexy Anglicanism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what I would maybe say behind that is kind of like sexy liturgicalness, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, like liturgy, it kind of sounds interesting and cool. Shame. And uh, there's a, there's uh, there's a coffee shop in Durham called liturgy. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so it's like a cool word. Yeah. I think in some backgrounds, you don't talk much about liturgy. And so it's like, Oh, what is that? I think now transitioning into thinking about how liturgy is shaped within the Anglican tradition. I think this is perhaps one of the most apparent and maybe the most uh, different things that one notices when they step into the doors of an Anglican worship service, you know, rather than singing a few songs, listening to a sermon, singing a few songs and, and leave, you know, that's an order of service that somebody might be familiar with. 
You walk into the doors, you receive a booklet, which guides you through a certain structure of worship. But I want to be careful in how we think about and define a liturgical church and how we think about what is liturgy. That was your, your, your question. And I think that'll help us think about this trend of how people think about liturgy out there in the world. So liturgy, it, again, Jake, I know I've, I've mentioned this a few times, but it comes from, funny enough, a Greek word. Uh, oh, who would have thought? A surprise. <laughs> uh, it comes from the Greek word letorgeo, mm. simply meaning at its root, it means something like the public service or the work of the people. Okay. So I want to communicate before we jump to some conclusions and say that liturgy, it's just a denominations thing. It's a, it's a man-made thing. It's not a biblical thing. I want to say like, this is a biblical word. It's a word that's used six times in the New Testament as a noun, three times as a verb. Sometimes it just refers to just general service. It has nothing to do with a worship setting. Mm -hmm. Other times it does specifically refer to the service of worship. There's an example, Acts 13, two, in the translation in the ESV, it talks about the apostles, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set us apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. That phrase there at the beginning, while they were worshiping, literally it's, it's communicating that while they were liturgioing, mm. <laughs> while they were liturgying, uh, so in that sense, while they were performing a worship service, mm -hmm. while they were conducting the liturgy, this is when this happened. So I think it's a... a, a worthwhile sidebar here, it's worth considering, you know, what exactly we're doing on a Sunday service. Uh, it's helpful, you know, we, we often call it a, a time of worship. I wonder if it's helpful if we use that language, you know, because we know that all of our life is worship. That's Romans 12, 1 through 2. We, we present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable or spiritual worship. So I think the church um, often maybe confuses what is worship by calling what we do on Sunday a worship service. Uh, it, and a lot of times the church historically called what we do on Sundays, they called it the, the divine service. Um, this is what Cranmer called the worship service often. So there's more I can say to that. I'll just leave that there for food, for thought, but for people to consider, you know, does it matter the language we use surrounding what happens during Sunday gatherings? I think sometimes using the language of worship makes us forget that, that all of life is worship. And I think I say all that to communicate that is tied up in that word liturgy. Mm. Liturgy has within itself a, it's the, the work of the people. It's the people coming together and, and serving the Lord on um, Sunday. So in summary, liturgy um, defined is something like a form or formulary according to which a public religious service, especially Christian worship service, is conducted. So uh, I also want to communicate there, because of that definition, that any worship service is intrinsically liturgical. Uh -huh. You may not think of your non-denom service as liturgical, but that, that model I mentioned earlier, you know, sing a few songs, hear a sermon, sing a few songs again and leave, that in itself is a type of liturgy. It has a shaping effect huh. on people. I mean... Go to a football game. Go to an American football game. There is some sort of 
work of the people. There's some sort of liturgy, a shaping effect happening in this place. You know, you go to a college football game. There's normally, beginning, there's the alma mater. There's a fight song. There's a Star Spangled Banner. There's the game. There's a halftime show. Then there's the alma mater again. And if you go to a Carolina game, you'll sing, if they win, James Taylor, Carolina on my mind at the end of the, the game. So um, the model I mentioned earlier, that, you know, hearing a few songs, sermon, etc. Again, it, it itself is a type of, of liturgy. So any worship service is liturgical. Like when we say the Anglican church is liturgical, every Christian worship service is, is liturgical. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that the Anglican church has a specific informed liturgy, which we believe shapes people to love and serve Jesus. The key there is to know what is that liturgy informed by. Mm-hmm. And it, you have to ask some hard questions at some point. Is it informed by some sort of individual consumerism, expressive individualism, or, or Hollywood celebrity, or other modern factors? Mm-hmm. Or is it informed by scripture and the gospel? You could ask hard questions there too. Is it informed by just rote tradition and what we've always done? That's just how we do it. Or is it informed by scripture? And these were the tough questions that uh, those who shaped the liturgy were trying to ask. And, and not just Cranmer and the English reformers, but but Calvin and Luther and many other folks that have tried to shape their, their worship service, their divine service in such a way to um, emphasize the gospel. So that's, in a nutshell, I hope, <laughs> how I would define liturgy. That's really helpful. That, that's really helpful, especially because the, the, the definition of kind of everybody has a liturgy. So you're, you're non-denom, you're Baptist, you're Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. They're all liturgical. Um, in fact, under that definition, it would be very hard to have a worship service that is non-liturgical. Mm-hmm. So then that, that begs the question then, uh, how, how then is the Anglican liturgy different? What, what makes our divine service different? Mm-hmm. If somebody walked into our doors and sat down, why would they think it looks different mm-hmm. than a non-denom or, or, or a Baptist church maybe? Yeah, so somewhat easy answer to that is just to say the liturgy of an Anglican service is informed by the Book of Common Prayer, which as people have listened to me throughout, they've heard me reference in different capacities because it was crafted by uh, Thomas Cranmer. You may have heard of him a few times. If I've, Your favorite if it, guy. Yeah, as I've talked about this. But so that's, I mean, that's one of those key distinctives. If somebody has asked me like, okay, what makes an Anglican an Anglican, I would want to say, well, you've got your doctrine in the 39 articles, you've got your polity and an Episcopal structure, and we have a, a distinct liturgical style in the Book of Common Prayer. And I, people might be surprised to hear this, but they might be more familiar with the Book of Common Prayer than they realize. A lot of the language that we use in our wedding ceremonies is, is crafted from the Book of Common Prayer. Same with funeral services, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know, that's not, obviously that's <laughs> scriptural, but that, sure. that was, it, you know, we, guess what? We live in America and America was largely shaped by the English tradition and the English language. And so the Book of Common Prayer, right along with things like Shakespeare, has had a large cultural shaping effect that that most of us don't even realize anymore. So, Mm. um, but to take a step back for a second, what the liturgy of the book of common prayer is seeking to do is to invite the worshiper into that narrative of scripture, into the narrative of how the gospel really confronts the human heart. You may remember a few episodes ago, I mentioned John is big on this idea of like when you walk into a worship setting, you're you're stepping into another narrative. There's the narrative of the world, then there's the narrative of scripture, there's the narrative of redemption, and that's what the worship service is seeking to do. And I just want to communicate too, uh, this is, I'm getting a lot of this intel, this information from a really helpful uh, resource. His name's Zach Hicks. 
He's written a few different books on Anglican liturgy. He just released a book called Worship by Faith Alone on Thomas Cranmer, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Reformation of Liturgy. His kind of point is largely in that book is that justification by faith is central to Cranmer's understanding of the shape of the liturgy. So mm-hmm. to communicate this, I normally have uh, a slide that I can walk through. So so bear with me, listeners. I'll try to explain it as best as I can without that. But so remind ourselves of the story of scripture as, as simple as you can think about it. It's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. We're created in the image of God by our sin. We have fallen from that nature. We are in We not only inherit that sin of Adam and Eve, but we participate in it as well. And without the righteousness of Christ, we are we stand far away from from God. And the law is given to us that that confronts our hearts (laughs) to show us that we have not lived up to that righteousness. And without that grace, without placing our faith in that righteousness of Christ, we are on this side of the wall. We are on this side of the wall between us and God. Mm -hmm. But because of Christ, as we mentioned. Uh, in the gospel, we can experience that grace. And so what Zach walks through is this kind of arc of scripture and the arc of liturgy too, of three things, the glory of God, the gravity of our sin, and then the grandeur of grace. And what he argues is that you're always trying in worship, and not just in worship, but in a Bible study, in a sermon, you're trying to to map on to that trajectory. He calls it the topography of the human heart. Um, and that is, you know, imagine a worship setting. You you walk into a worship setting and there's the, there's the hymn, right, that opens up and you're drawn into that glory of God. Well, what happens when a finite, sinful human starts to compare themselves with that glory? <laughs> mm. Well, you're, mapped, you're now mapped onto the narrative of Scripture. You realize that as Paul realizes in Romans 7, that I would not know what coveting was if the law did not say, do not covet. <laughs> and then what he says at the end of Romans 7 is, what a wretched man I am. You know, the law flattens us from all backgrounds of life to say, I have nothing to present to God, but my filthy rags, as Isaiah talks about. And so it's at that point where we, we go from the glory of God down into the gravity of our sin. So naturally, what what happens right after we sing the hymn? We normally go into confession, right? Because human beings cannot stand long Mm. in that, in the face of an almighty, perfect, righteous God. We confess our sin, place our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. What happens? Same thing as in the end of Romans 7. You might remember, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Paul says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then that launches into the beauties of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So we go from glory of God down into the gravity of our sin into the grandeur of grace. Um, We go into the grandeur of redemption and new creation. So I just love that. I love that, that first of all, that's the, the narrative of Scripture, and that's the topography of the human heart. But mm. as I've already mentioned, you can see this in various aspects of our liturgical shape. There's um, in morning prayer, we, we go into that hymn, then we go into confession, and then there's, there's forgiveness. And um, the rest of the service is moving in that trajectory. Of, again, again, there's the initial trajectory of that topography of confession and forgiveness and then it happens in the sermon as well and we the sermon is drawing you both into that glory of God down into the gravity of sin and then 
asking you to place your faith and trust in this reality. And that's why we normally have the creed right after the sermon. Is so this is the that's the point where you're confronted by law. That's the point that you're confronted by your sin. Now place your faith faith and trust vocally mm-hmm. in this finished work of Christ and move into that grandeur of grace. So we have that as well in our Holy Communion. This happens. We have uh, what's called the Liturgy of the Table, where sometimes we'll sing something like, at least in our context, we'll sing the Gloria, you know, mm. glory to God in the highest. Um, that, so this drawing our hearts into the, the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And then we go into the the sermon, which is confronting our hearts with the word, confronting our hearts with the law, presenting the gospel to us. And then there's that creedal affirmation as well. We do this at the table. If you pay attention to the the, the words of the Eucharistic liturgy, the table is prepared. Um, your hearts pause and you consider the God that you're worshiping. You consider the sin that you have that week and that's where you're drawn into the gravity of your sin. And as we walk through the prayer um, as I or, or Jason or John or somebody might be walking through, you're, you're confronted by at just the right time when we were weak and unable to help ourselves. Christ Jesus died for who? The ungodly. The ungodly because we've been confronted by that law and what a wretched people we are. Who will save us from this body of death? And then you move into the grandeur of grace by the reception of those elements, by the reception of the bread and the wine. So those are, you see how that maps onto our liturgy there. And then lastly, you can even see it in the the shape of the Christian year. I think this is kind of cool too. You've got, so the Christian year begins, New Year's Day for the Christian year is is Advent. Mm -hmm. So you begin with the incarnation, the glories of the incarnation and the beauties of what we celebrate on Christmas and the epiphany of Christ being revealed to the nations. And then interesting, what do we do? We go from Christmas and Advent into into what? We go into Lent, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're drawn in Lent into a penitential season. We're drawn into the, the gravity of our sin. <laughs> you know, Christ died for a reason, and it's because of our, our sin put him there. Mm-hmm. So we go into the gravity of his sin, and then, then what happens? We move into Easter and Pentecost, the, the grandeurs, the unimaginable riches of the resurrection and life in in God through the Spirit in Pentecost. So there is this almost like a a Russian nesting doll effect, (laughs) I think, in the liturgy where you have like these yearly rhythms, you have these monthly or quarterly rhythms, seasonal rhythms, you have these uh, weekly and even daily rhythms when you get down into like the daily offices and stuff that what the hope is and what Cranmer's thought was is like there's such a shaping effect that you're you're being shaped by the gospel. You're being shaped by the, the narrative of scripture as you come into worship, whether you realize it or not. And it has a shaping effect on you. It has a shaping effect on your family. It has a shaping effect on your communities. And I just think that's one of the more beautiful things about our tradition. It's not just that we're liturgical, but it's that in our liturgy through these daily, weekly, yearly rhythms, we are inviting people to inhabit a better story than the world is able to tell. A story that's shaped by scripture that reminds us of our own experience with the gospel. And I just want to say too, like this story must be felt physically and emotionally, not just conceptually or cognitively. So through our liturgy, we desire that people not just you know, observe worship, no different than they would observe a football game or observe a, something at a movie theater, but to inhabit, to participate in these ups and downs of the gospel story. So I just think that's, uh, one of the more cool things of what's happening in the liturgy. And yeah, so it's a, 
it's a really it's become something that I've really grown to to love. Yeah, and I, I have the benefit here of, uh, I can see your slide, uh, <laughs> so I can kind of see what you're talking about, but just for the, the benefit of the listener, the, the, the kind of shape, the, you kept using the word topography, so mm -hmm. I'm going to try and describe it topographically. So it's like uh, when you come into a service, you're kind of at ground level, but in front of you there's this hillock, right? So you go up this hill, and as you rise that hill, that's the, that's the ascending to the glory of God, so you've got this, mm -hmm. this initial peak. But then as you get to the top of that hill, you then roll down kind of into this valley, which is the gravity of sin. But then in front of you, there's this even greater precipice. Yeah, that you El then, Capitan. Yeah, El Capitan, like much higher than this hillock, which you then scale in the, the, once you are assured of the forgiveness of Christ and, and you arrive at this, this new greater peak, this greatest climax of the service, which is this grandeur of grace. Mm -hmm. So just to give a little topographical breakdown yeah, of what yeah, you're talking about there. That's helpful. Yeah, I hope, I hope that helps the listener a little bit because, again, I, it's, it's hard when you're not looking at the picture. So I've been attending services at Holy Trinity for a while, and um, there, there are, as you, as you mentioned, there's some differences that mm -hmm. you may not have experienced in a, in a, a non-denom or a Baptist church. There's, there's people, they're standing up, sitting down, kneeling. There's more aerobic activity <laughs> than one would necessarily expect in a normal service. So could you tell me more, like a little bit about that? Like wh why is there so much going on in Anglican service? Uh, why does worship look that way? Yeah, yeah, as I was just mentioning, you know, this is, it's more than, you're more than just a, a participant. You're more than just a viewer. You are a participant. You know, there's the idea of there's, you go to a football game, I've mentioned that analogy, and what's happening in a worship service is you're, rather than you're in section 112 watching the events play out on the, the field, you are part of the game. Mm. And so if you're a part of the game, you're a wide receiver and you just stand there. Well, you're going to get like <laughs> yelled at, <laughs> but that's like not the point. You, if you're a part of the game, then you, you do things, you move, you, you, you have uh, a, a role to play in the service. And I, I think it's really cool. Like when I think an Anglican service is really, when a Christian worship service is really flourishing, it's the worship leader is not somebody up on stage. It, it is the congregation. The congregation is the worship leader. And because of this, we, we use our bodies. The Anglican church has, has believed that what we do with our bodies matter in worship. And you see this in the Psalms, right? You clap, you kneel, you raise your hands in worship. And it has taken upon itself these practices and movements that reflect that conviction. So, yes, there's things that include kneeling for prayer, crossing oneself when the Trinity is invoked, uh, or bowing as the cross comes into the service, all of which they, they move our bodies in such a way which shape us humbly before God. I'll be honest, Jake, I thought a lot of this stuff was kind of weird when I first came <laughs> around, and it's not what I grew up with. At least I, it was weird to me because I... I kind of had always the thought that this was a little bit legalistic or rote and unnecessary. I've come to have a bit of a change of heart on some of that. Uh, I want to say that, you know, to be Anglican, to participate in this divine service does not mean you are required to do all those things. Mm. Like you're a puppet attached to the strings of the liturgy. Uh, some people may have some disagreements with that, but I, I firmly believe that. Um, but I do want to say my principle has always been this idea of all may, some should, no one must. This idea of, hey, with all these different shaping features of worship, that all may, some should, no one must. That principle of all may, some should. So the idea of kneeling for prayer. All may, all are invited to do that. And then I would communicate too that some should, and the idea of like when we're confessing, that we should 
present our bodies as living sacrifices. We should humbly move into this space. And perhaps you're in a penitential season where this would be, it would be helpful for you. And it actually would do something to your heart to, to, to kneel before this, in this confession. But I would want to say no one must. No one has to do that. No one has to do that to be a good Anglican. No one has to do that to worship and love their Savior. I would also communicate that second point on that idea of some should. Maybe, maybe some should not. If this has become some thing that you believe you're somehow earning God's favor more by doing this, mm. then revisit that because I think you might want to read through Galatians <laughs> again, you know? That reminds <laughs> me of when you talked about the, the change of the word meritorious right. uh, yeah. from, from the original creeds. Exactly. Uh, that, 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 in, that intentionally removing of trying to earn this whole thing, trying right. to earn the grace of God. Absolutely. And so I, I would just want to be careful there. But to those who maybe are super skeptical, or I, one thought I had was like, as I entered into this more was, I was very familiar in the Baptist world, people raising their hands in worship, and you want to maybe ask, like, why did why do people do that? You know, it's like, well, you're you're worshiping your Savior. You can't help but like you move your body in such a way to mm. do this, and it does something to you when you raise your hands and praise the Lord. Well, I would say something not too dissimilar is happening when you kneel for prayer, or for some people that's even crossing themselves of 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 uh, embodied prayer in some way of of reminding themselves bodily of what they're communicating here. Um, so I, you know, I, I give or take on some of those things. It's not a, a huge hill I want to die on, but that's how I would communicate it. It's like when you see these things, feel free to participate in it. You 100% don't have to, to worship here. But yeah, that's what, that's how I kind of think about how that's seen there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very helpful, especially for somebody who's in these services and a, you see everybody kind of does it different. So even our even our our bulletins, when we get to the point where it says pray, it says sit or kneel. Mm -hmm. um, so you're kind of given that opportunity, like, well, which, whichever one you prefer. Mm -hmm. um, there are kneelers on the chairs, but not everybody uses them. Mm -hmm. um, so to kind of understand more why that is, why there's not more conformity in that area, mm -hmm. I think is really helpful. Yeah, and I would encourage people, hey, try it. You know, like, I think sometimes I can at least speak for myself. I didn't want to do it because it was weird. <laughs> um, I, I was mindful of what other people thought about me mm. and what I, I think maybe I thought God would love me less if I did that in a weird like reverse way of the legalism you know like I thought maybe God would look at that and say oh you're getting into legalism stuff you know by kneeling it's like I think that's a little bit of the same problem you know yeah the same problem in reverse <laughs> yeah so I, I would say people try it see what happens uh, to their heart and um, see what the Lord does with that Okay, uh, do you think that about covers liturgy? You want to move into how we're a missional church now? I think so. Before we get into that, though, a, a lot of people may be thinking, oh, missional, like that's when you send like people to Venezuela to go yeah. preach the gospel. And I think that may be both somewhat helpful but also somewhat limiting. So uh, again, just as with all the other things, like I, I'd love not only a definition of how we're missional, but like what, what does missional really mean uh, mm -hmm. in, in a Christian context, not just an Anglican context? Yeah, 100%. And I think I want to clarify for people if they listen to the last few episodes, I think I communicated we were going to talk about, and normally I talk about how modern Anglicanism is seen in a Protestant, evangelical, missional way. Brief clarification on that. 
you know, Protestant, we've already discussed that a good deal. Uh, evangelical, I'm not communicating necessarily in a, in a political sense at all. I'm just communicating that we are, at the end of the day, shaped by the Evangelion, Evangelion, <laughs> the, the gospel. Uh, and that's what we're going to promote and seek after. Um, and then lastly, so yes, but I think it would be most important to think about our missional focus. And by that, I just, at the outset, want to confirm that we gladly accept the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations and to seek those who don't know Christ, to baptize, teach, and to bring believers into maturity. So I want to say to everybody, like, you are a missionary. I think it was Spurgeon or somebody who said, like, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, does that mean that you go to Venezuela? <laughs> I want to say you're a missionary. You are sent into your families, into your workplaces, and we hope that the Anglican church, this church, any church is a place that amplifies that calling from scripture to be an ambassador for Christ. That's, that's Paul's language, Second Corinthians, right? So the biblical precedent from that is this idea that the church, Christians are a saved from and a saved to be people. That makes sense. We are saved from and saved for people. So Israel was, right? They were saved from Egypt to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19. Um, then you've got the New Testament idea. This, this is First Peter. You go to a lot of places. What does Peter say? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, here's the four ideas. So that was from, this is what you were. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you did not have these responsibilities. You did not have this vocation. Now you are God's people. Now you have this vocation. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. So every Christian is an ambassador. Every Christian takes upon themselves this reality that we are saved from and saved from, saved to be people. Mm-hmm. So this is the shape of our mission. This was Jesus' words to the church, Acts 1.8, to the apostles, clarified. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And just quick point there, I mean, people quote this a lot, and I would just want to communicate there, a lot of churches I see, especially in the evangelical world, they like to talk about being witnesses to Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. We like to, to, <laughs> to pub in our newsletters that we're going to the ends of the earth, we're going to some other country, going to Venezuela or whatever, and we like to say, hey, we are missionaries to our families. We are serving our children and all these things. But the Samaria one's a little bit more tricky. It's, you know, think about what Jesus is communicating there geographically. Like, hey, you'll be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. But the there is Samaria. <laughs> the there is the place like, oh, like, well, you want us to go there? Like, mm-hmm. that's the place, like, that's the the other side of the street. You know, that's the place that might be harder, that has a history with you that you might not as easily go into that place and, and serve. So I just want to communicate that is the shape of our mission too. The shape of our mission is to serve, yes, the hears of our communities, our, our surrounding community, but it's the there as well. And it's the everywhere. It's the places that are hard to go to. It's the places that um, the reality is there's there's unreached people groups all around the world that God has sheep that are not of the fold, that he must find them. And there's uh, a missional component to the nations, of course. But the here, there, and everywhere, and there's people, I want to communicate to those listening, there are, I think it's really easy, especially statistically, I think most people say, oh, well, I'll just do the, the here thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> or maybe the there, too. Uh, sure. But the ends of the earth, oh, that's... Uh, that's far away. That's far away. I would have to reconsider my career. Mm-hmm. I'd have to reconsider... I have to move uh, my family. I have to move my family. And... 
I want to say those are the questions you should be asking. <laughs> those are the questions that Jesus wants to confront your heart to ask and ask yourself, Do you, are there unreached people groups that you could either go to or you could be a part of sending people to go to those parts of the world? So I've always, I've communicated to, to college students that every Christian is either a goer or a sender. Um, you are either going to the nations yourself or you are actively contributing to the needs of those who are themselves going. And so you are a sender. Yeah, that's the shape of, of the biblical message of, of mission. Those are some, uh, some good high watermarks. Um, and I just want to say, too, if it's just worth saying Anglican Church has failed at, mm. at times to live out this mission. And in its effort to live out the mission, it perhaps is hurt communities and hurt uh, cultures. Think about Anglican Church was a part of the African slave trade, and that's an example of that. And um, the Anglican Church should and has repented of those things. And so mm-hmm. um, while, yes, we've done a lot of encouraging things, as the church as a whole has done some hurtful things as well. I just think that's worth vocalizing. Yeah, good. So how then can we take that? How can we take the, the, the lessons or, or the examples? Uh, how can we use these examples to come to a better understanding of what do we do now? Uh, what does it look like to be missional in 2023 and beyond? What does it look like to take the history of the Anglican Church and, and use it to push forward? Yeah, yeah, history of Anglican Church and, of course, those uh, convictions from Scripture. And I think I hope people take into account, as with a lot of these things, what I'm not trying to communicate is, oh, here's how to be a good Anglican. It's, mm. I hope Anglicanism is a part of a global Christian church. And uh, to be a missional church is to be a part of the mission of God, not to be a part of the mission of Anglicanism, mm. you know? So t- I would, a few closing points. You know, I would just say in light of these things, to be a missional church means that we have a heart for lost people. I think that's the heart of what I'm trying to communicate, and it's the heart of something I always want to come back to. Something a mentor has asked me before is, Trip, if, if all your prayers were answered tomorrow, how many people would come to know Jesus? Mm. I just think that's a good question to come back to here or there. It's like, man, I got all these problems. I got all these anxieties, these worries, and how much of that is for my my brother, my uh, my friend, or others who might not know Jesus? And so... Um, a few scripture examples of this. Romans 9, 1, Paul just says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Yeah, such profound language there. And I mean, Paul is speaking specifically of his kinsmen in, in Israel, mm-hmm. but it, he, he's realizing the weight of their lack of trust in Christ. And he says he has an unceasing anguish in my heart for them. I think us in a postmodern, secular world, we've kind of just sometimes accepted like, oh, this people do this, people do that. But it's, I think Paul would have us revisit that thought. It's like unceasing anguish in my heart. John ten sixteen. this is a part of Christ's mission is, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So I think a part of discipleship, a part of my responsibility, and I think the responsibility of of fellow Christians as laborers in the harvest field, as the priesthood of all believers, is to be drawn and to draw others into the heart of God. 
And God has a heart for lost people. And to become more in the image of Christ is to have a heart for lost people ourselves. Secondly here, I would just want to say to be a missional church means that we have to turn outward rather than inward. To be a missional church, I think, as I mentioned a second ago, we're drawn into the heart of God. And God has a heart for Roman or Revelation 7 that every nation from all tribes, peoples, and languages would come into the, the throne room. That's what... John's vision was in Revelation 7. That's what eternity will be. And so we're drawn into that heart as well. So I just want to pause here because I think naturally in this, people get caught up in the language of uh, in diversity. And this is a popular topic these days in uh, missionary efforts and the missional world. I, I would want to communicate here that, okay, so diversity for the sake of diversity is not always celebrated in the Bible. There's, there's a lot of cultural diversity happening around the times of First and Second Kings, where the kings of Israel and Judah, Judah worshiped other gods and took up their practices and all sorts of things. But there seems to be a key point happening in these books. Israel destroys itself because it is not unified under the worship of the one true God. And so I think this is a helpful thing to keep in mind, especially for missional purposes, that there can be diversity without unity. And specifically, mm-hmm. we're talking about unity under the worship of the Son, who reconciles us to the Father through the Spirit. But there cannot be unity without diversity. You know, unity is a very popular and it's a very huge theme for Paul in the New Testament. It's being united with Christ and being united with, other, with others. Paul says, be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit. I think the very nature of the word implies there being variety, being joined together. I think about the phrase United States. Why is it called that? Because you could be tempted to think there's different states with their own varying uh, emphases and, um, you know, undivided. And so the, the point of this country originally was to unite these separate entities. Think about the European Union or ultimate things and ultimately think about something like the Trinity, the mm-hmm. triune God, is that we're, we're this is a, a, a unified entity. And so it implies that there could be some some difference between those, but it's unified under under one entity. So I would just want to communicate, if we desire to be a missional church that lives out the unity described in the Bible, it will imply we create spaces that honors this missional impetus to be a witness to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so in this, we are seeking to anticipate that day when we will be surrounded by that witness, by that cloud of witnesses that has stood the test of time, that expands across North America, Africa, Southeast Asia, you know, um, Eurasia, wherever else, and that uh, the languages that we'll hear in heaven are much, 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 much more than English. And mm. um, I just, uh, I think that's a really cool thing about the idea of turning outward and, and beginning to anticipate that now in our missional practice um, by not building up a fortress mentality, you know, by not building up a, a me and mine mentality, mm. but really reaching out to others and others that might be uncomfortable to reach out to, those Samarias of the world, if you will. So lastly, I just want to communicate here to be a missional church means we use the entirety of the body. We use uh, ordained ministers. We used lay people. We use men, women, 
the weak, the strong, whoever. And I, I want to make a note here because I think it's just worth mentioning. I've mentioned a lot of men on this podcast. Uh, I've mentioned Thomas Cranmer so many times, C.S. Lewis, Austin Fair, William Perkins. I think I mentioned John Calvin this episode. I recognize throughout this podcast, I, I haven't mentioned many women's voices. And I, I want to clarify, women are, are vital to the church. Women are incredibly vital and often overlooked parts of the body. The Anglican world has a rich tradition of active female voices in the church. There's a few examples of Mary Sumner and Hannah Moore who were renewers in society and did a lot of good for um, the culture around them. Evelyn Underhill, a writer and thinker. Same with Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers is one of my favorites because she was was an inkling with uh, Lewis and Tolkien and those guys and and a a strong intellectual competitor with those guys Mm -hmm. and pushing them to think scripture. Surely. Along even today, there's uh, examples like Tish Harrison Warren writing well for the church. So uh, to be a missional church means we use the entirety of the body, that no one is more capable of honoring and serving God than, than someone else. And I think about perhaps the most influential Anglican in the last hundred years was not an ordained clergy person. <laughs> it was uh, arguably C.S. Lewis, you know, uh, a, a dude who smoked a lot of pipes and <laughs> wrote a lot about 16th century English literature. Um, so it's just, that's, that's what being missional means is that you're a part of this just as much as anyone else. Yeah. And we represent that to some degree because uh, I am a layperson yeah. and uh, you're an ordained minister. So uh, we, we stand in to some degree for that. Um, yeah, Jake. So that's, I think that's it. We've covered just about it all. I'm curious. So have I, have I won you over or <laughs> have you, uh, you come to the Canterbury trail? Uh, uh, well, but I guess at the very least, like, yeah. What are you taking away from this time and what would you encourage others to take away? I, I So I have learned a tremendous deal and I think I have come to a, a much greater appreciation and understanding of both Anglicanism and uh, a lot of different vocab words that I did not know before, but that describe kind of our, our life together, not only as Anglicans, but more broadly as Christians. So I would say that in, in that way, you have definitely won me over <laughs> in that uh, it's been an enriching experience for me and I hope for the listener as well. And as far as takeaways, I think I would just encourage the listener. I mean, you probably came because of the initial question, like what is Anglicanism? But I, I hope that this is not only enriched you in your understanding of Anglicanism as it has me, but uh, that it would be an enrichment of your understanding of the gospel, of your understanding of what church community looks like and what it can really mean to, to be in the body and worshiping the triune God. This has been not only a, an intellectually stimulating time for me, but uh, a spiritually enriching one. So I guess my takeaway would be not only is the, the body of Christ richer and deeper and better for knowing these things, but continue to pursue the gospel and do that in community with others. I think one of the great benefits of the body is that uh, the Lord, not only has the Lord called us to it, but uh, as iron sharpens iron, we make each other better and we get to be enriched by others' skills. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have been incredibly enriched by you, Trip, in this time (laughs) together. Uh, Someone who really knows their stuff intellectually and who can really format heck of a discussion. Um, but uh, to be able to benefit from your skills as somebody who doesn't have them is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. And to be able to be here as the lay person and the stand-in for the person listening at home has been great. Yeah, appreciate that encouragement. I mean, there's a lot more smart people out there than me that uh, <laughs> I will cite their resources that I've used. So if anyone's listening to this, I'm like, oh, I said that. I'm like, I, I got you. 
I think what I would just want to communicate again, and we talked about it in the very first episode, is that, hey, we just want to love Jesus, and we want others to love Jesus, and we want others to love Jesus and come to love Jesus and then see other people come to love Jesus. And so while, yes, we've used a lot of words and theology and other things like that, at the end of the day, that's the heart of this, that all of our hearts are on the altar before God. And, you know, we, we come in often through hard weeks of work, you know, hearts of stone, hearts that are, are hardened to the ways of the world. And what my prayer is and hope is that in an Anglican service, that that heart on the altar, not, you know, certain elements or whatever, but we ourselves are put on the altar and that there's this consuming fire of God that can take hearts of stone, be confronted with the spirit of God and be totally transformed into the resurrecting power of a heart of flesh, a heart that lives on mission for God and seeks to serve their families. They're here, seeks to serve the there, those, the needy and those perhaps unlike them and then the rest of the world. And so that's what's happening in a Christian worship service. And that's how the Anglican worship service um, desires to, to see that happen as well. Well, to those of you listening, um, I, I hope this has been uh, a helpful and enriching time. Um, and even more than that, uh, just a quick invitation. If you're in the immediate Raleigh-Durham uh, <laughs> area, uh, Holy Trinity Church, pretty cool church, and we'd love to have you come and visit. We'd love to meet you and just be able to share in the body with you. So come on down. And we also hope this won't be our last series. We're, we're hopeful that we'll be able to produce more episodes on various topics. We're not always going to be talking about what is Anglicanism. Yeah. There's lots of other things. Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> there's lots of other things that uh, would be enriching from the body, not only from, from Tripp and me sitting here with him, but from other members of our, uh, our ministry staff here that will hopefully be helpful for you guys. So we hope you'll come back and listen to us again. Awesome. Yeah, man, it's been fun. I hope people were edified. I'd love to just close with a prayer. This is actually a prayer for mission. Mm. We've been talking a lot about mission today. We'd love to close with it, and then we'll we'll be we'll be done. I'll pray. Oh God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.